Hey, iTunes listeners, just a quick word before we dive into this week's episode. Big apologies for the uh, feed mix-up last week. Totally spaced it on that one and broke the entire feed for a couple days. Big thanks to the listeners that uh, hit Richie up and let us know. And again, thanks for sticking with us, and I'll try not to let it happen again. And with that, raise the horns, because Focus on Metal is on the air. Hey all, here's Andreas Kisser from Sepultura and De La Tierra, and you are on Focus on Metal. Destroy! Focus Hey, Metalheads, Scott here. And Richie. And can you believe it? We decided to come back for yet another week. It's amazing, right? Two weeks in a row. <laughs> we kind of have to now. Richie keeps throwing audio at me left and right, so I'm like, all right, I, I guess I'm, I'm still in. So uh, here we are once again, and uh, two weeks in a row, Richie back in the studio as well, despite the fact that, uh, you know, the New England weather keeps on going. It'll be like shit tonight, so. Yeah, I heard that, yeah. Good fun for tomorrow morning. We'll have to stay here. <laughs> <laughs> But we got uh, we got two great guests this week, um, and kind of from two ends of the spectrum. So we've got Andreas Kisser from uh, Sepultura, and then uh, from the uh, kind of the non-guys-on-stage part of it, we have John Wiederhorn talking about his brand-new book, Raising Hell. Yeah, two guys I've never spoken to. Yeah. Did pull out louder than the hell in case you want to borrow it? I Read have it. it. You have it. I okay. have it, yeah. Uh, it's a big, big tome, that one. It is, yeah. It's good. It's good. Uh, it's a good summertime drinking beer, kicking back. Um, back when I used to have a yard and a deck, um, yeah, that's where I read it. Uh, good stuff. But it's good. Good one here, raising hell. Um, it's kind of weird. We got the promo copy, so there's kind of you see stuff and you go, "What the? Oh yeah, that's right, promo copy mm-hmm. stuff that's that's like missing from it." But uh, but good book. I literally read it cover to cover um, on Sunday. Whole thing. You read the whole thing? The whole thing, except, like, except for there was one chapter that I went, ah, screw this. I can't, I can't deal with any more of it. The vomiting uh, one? Nope. No, I went through that one, no problem. <laughs> it was the last one. It was the, the whole influences one. Yeah. I, I just was like, he really didn't need to put this in. I, maybe he had like all these little interviews and he thought, where am I ever going to use this again and stuck it in? But that was the only one where I was just like, all right, I started reading a few of them and then I kind of leafed through and oh, I'll read the Lemmy ones or whatever, but... I, I, that was the only one that I didn't read the entire thing, uh, but otherwise, I mean, it's a good read because I'm I'm reading it and I'm and I'm thinking, you play in a band, yeah, you do end up having some bad behavior, and some of it, you know, kind of gave me kind of throwbacks of, uh, you know, stuff that uh, we used to do as well. You know, the the uh, the chapter on larceny was like, ah. Uh, like the the mic stand that you've got right there, that's that's a little bit of uh, from the back in the days of larceny. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I ever told you this. Yeah, we, we need to look behind me now. So. <laughs> okay, I think the statutes of limitations are uh, way away from that one. But yeah, there was a, a music store in, in Channel Street, not there anymore. Great place. They used to do a lot of business with rental, and uh, th- especially like Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And, you know, you'd call in, they'd get all the stuff together. It'd be, all be sitting there when you went in to go pick up. So you'd get out pretty quick. But the guy that, that ran the place was legally blind and easily distracted. So, you, you know, the key was if you were going to run stuff. Yeah. Oh, here. <laughs> and the key was that you had, to, you had to be one of the first bands there to pick your stuff up. 
So you'd go in and, and you you know you legitimately be renting stuff, but at the same time you'd go, oh okay, well I need a few more mic stands and some more cables and a snake and and you just like be grabbing from other band stuff and you'd you'd leave with more stuff than you rented. And sometimes it was because you needed more for the gig, but you didn't want to pay for it. But then other times you were like you had something permanently like that mic stand that I think I've had for over twenty years now, and the 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 uh, store label is still on the. On the post. <laughs> I'm telling. Is he, do you know his name? <laughs> I do know his name, actually. Um, but, oh, yeah, that was, that was, uh, that's the larceny one. That reminded me about, about just doing that. And, uh, you know, a lot of them kind of struck a chord with me of, of stuff where, yeah, you're in a band and you, you do do stupid shit. It's, yeah, it's just part of being a band, you know? I picked and choose what chapters i read you did i read i wanted to read some of the funny ones first yeah spinal tap one was definitely one uh-huh um the, the vomiting one i was like fucking <laughs> hell i even I, I even asked john about that yeah in you the did. interview but it's a it's over 400 pages there's a lot in it um well not 400 pages of vomiting no but there's 464 pages yeah in the there's book. probably about 20 something chapters all on different uh, yeah. aspects yeah. of road life yeah it's pretty eye-opening. Some of it is pretty tragic. Um, there's a lot of pain with some of the bands in it. The, uh-huh. the lengths that they go through to make shows um, is pretty eye-opening. It, it, it's not all fun and games. Not and every time, a lot no. of, There's a lot of boredom. Um, a lot of ethics get thrown out the window <laughs> when you're on the road. Yeah. Um, I, I wish he had a, had more 80s guys in it, though. Um, he had a lot of 90s guys, a lot more modern, uh-huh. younger bands yeah. in it. Yeah. Um, the 80s names that jump out to me that are in it, Derek Turner in it a bit, the Warrant guys, you had Mark Slaughter in it a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Um, it would have been nice if he had had some of maybe the bigger names from back then, maybe some 70s guys in as well. Yeah, but you know what? The- Maybe the stories would be all similar anyway. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of them would be. And then, you know, it's all about, a lot of it's too, is, you know, the level of label support and all that stuff and, 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 and what you have. And I think also that, you know, I would bet that he did interview a lot more of the guys from the 80s who probably came up with all these big stories. And he kind of went through the lens of it and went, was kind of like, all right, 80% of that is total bullshit. And I think a lot of the other ones that you read in here, you're like, some of them make you go, what the? But I, I think there's not really, the bullshit detector isn't going off all the time. You know, so I think that there's, maybe there's a balance there. You surprised that he actually got people to go on the record and talk about stories? No. You're not, not now. I was no. a little bit. Not, not what now. What goes on tour stays on tour. <laughs> yeah. Some but- of the stories about the groupies in it are pretty fucking disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, no mention about cold cuts. But anyways, um yeah. Uh Yeah, it's like I said, being in a band, yeah, it can inspire some bad behavior. Even the even the vomit one. I think I must have told you the classic vomit story. The ultimate vomit story we had was we were playing some gig in Rhode Island and we had uh we had a couple of backup singers at that point and they kind of handled some of the um, some of the other songs that were a little bit higher as well. Good singers, but um, one of them got trashed, just got trashed. And then we got to where we were staying, which was kind of this like like a beach house kind of thing. And uh, she was just, just trashed. And it ended up that uh, 
everyone just had enough of her and she was kind of staggering and half passed out and all that. So he basically took these two like wooden couches things and pushed them together and made like a crib out of it and put her in there. And, uh, and then we're all just, we're just kind of partying or whatever. And we just kind of hear this song and we look over and it's basically this puke fountain happening in the, in the, between the, <laughs> that was like, yeah, that was the, the classic puke story we had was that it was like, up uh, and, uh, Time that, go. and there, and there, uh, <laughs> her, 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 the guy she was seeing at the time was, uh, actually one of our, uh, our roadies. And it was kind of like, all right, dude, no, well, she's yours. <laughs> oh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. You have the puke stories. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, one of the ones that I, I laughed my ass off was, and I can't remember, even remember who it was, but the guy talking about um, about puking on the stage during, um, I think it was that loadout, and then the next band going up and sliding around in yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you know who's in it a lot is Will Carroll, the drummer in Death Angel. Can you see why? Yeah. <laughs> he's he's had a pretty interesting life on, on the road. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's... Uh, <laughs> Either going to shows or playing in bands. He is, yeah, he's definitely a character and a half, yeah. And, yeah, and, uh, yeah he's, you're right, he's in there a lot. Hmm. Um, but, you can, but even as a teenager, he's in there talking about, yeah. about getting busted and then going yep. back to the club again yep. when he was told not to and mm-hmm. stuff. So um, he's just a character. He yeah. just is, yeah. yeah. Um, I remember, yeah, I mean, early days, he, um, he hit me up on, uh, on Facebook. We used to shoot the shit a lot back and forth on Facebook. Like okay. Years ago, yeah. Just out of the blue, he started shooting the shit with me. So, uh, yeah, good guy. And I, yeah, I laughed my ass off on some of the stuff he was talking about. Um, yeah, then some people just kind of pop up every once in a while. But, it, you know, the other thing that is that, that, you know, John talks about in the interview, too, is it, it is definitely that bathroom read. If you just kind of want to pick something up and, and, like, read a couple of stories or whatever, and you're like, all right, I'll get back to it thing, and you can flip back and forth and stuff. It's perfect for that. Too, it is, so. definitely. Yeah. Because the the sto- there's a lot of stories in it. None of them are really, really long, like pages right, long. Right. Some of them are only like a paragraph or two paragraphs. Right. Because they're all grouped together depending on what heading the chapter mm-hmm. is. Right. Um, very good read. That was, he was the first interview I did in uh, 2020. And uh-huh. I did it in early January. Um, so we're only getting around, because we had the break, we're only getting around to running it now. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely worth uh, picking up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of his books, I've read some of them. Yeah. Um, he's a good writer. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you say we, uh, why don't we run your talk with John and get back for some more discussion after that? Sure. Oh, Rich. hi, Rich. Yeah. How you doing, John? So the, the book is out today, isn't it? Yeah. No, the book came out yesterday. Oh, yes. Yeah, I'm very excited about it. And uh, the response has been great so far. So uh, knock on wood. Yeah. So, John, where, where was the, imp- what was the impetus to do the book? Was, did you want to address like a, maybe a misconception about road life by doing a book like this? Like, what, what was the reasoning for doing it? Well, it would be great to think I had really lofty ambitions, but uh, I really wanted to tell a bunch of great stories, have a bunch of musicians talk about their um, most outrageous, funniest, most heartbreaking, and most compelling stories, really, that they've experienced in the world of metal. I did a book called uh, Louder Than Hell seven years back or so, which was really a thorough history of metal. It was an oral history from the 60s to the present day. And uh, so I felt that I'd already gone that route at doing a history book, but but also when I did it, I found that the most enjoyable parts for me were the parts where artists really talked about the uh, antics that they 
engaged in during certain eras and finding out what kind of activities, you know, one type of uh, metal performer, uh, you know, exhibited versus another one. Like the hair metal guys were way different than death metal guys. And I figured, wow, you know, these stories are so great. Wouldn't it be cool if I just took all these metal guys, not the ones I talked about particularly in the book, but just, you know, a bunch of new, new, uh, old, new, old, uh, a bunch of new people, but, but from all eras of metal and put them in this, uh, this book that, that just, you know, had tons of, uh, great anecdotes and stories and was categorized into, into sections that, uh, described each type of, of behavior or, or, uh, subject that um, was being addressed. Mm. Now, were all the stories done for interviews for this book specifically, or did they come from other interviews you'd done over the years? Most of them were done specifically for the book. Um, I uh, have been interviewing bands for 25-odd years, and have developed really good relationships with pretty much most of them. Um, So there was a level of trust that went in. And when I tried to get someone to uh, answer questions for the book, I made it perfectly clear what categories I was looking uh, for for answers in and how the book would be really about uh, fun stories and outrageous stories, but wouldn't throw anyone under the bus. And, uh, you know, there was no intent to have some sensational or or scandalous, uh, uh, you know, type of of material out there. Mm. Now, Going to getting thrust to the musician is one thing, but you, you would have had to deal with PR, probably the ba- the, the guy's management. Um, were they easy yes. to get? Were they easy to get on board, or were they a little bit resistant in the beginning, in general? Well, yeah, you know, you, you get resistance from people who aren't promoting a particular project sometimes. So, you know, say uh, an album is coming out in three months, and the band wants to talk about that, and pretty much that alone, they'll answer other questions that don't pertain to that particular album while they're doing that interview cycle. But when the cycle's over, sometimes they're off limits. So in a lot of cases, I did the interviews around the time bands were doing interviews for an album cycle. And uh, in other cases, I called uh, friends and, and uh, you know colleagues, people who've trusted me through the years and uh, I've developed a reputation with. And everyone pretty much was on board and thought it was a great idea for a book. Hmm. Did you do a lot of the interviews face-to-face or are most of them done over the phone? Well, considering there's 150 in the book, <laughs> yeah. Uh, they were, yeah, it was it was mostly phone. And did you get any blowback from PR or management that they wanted to see what you were going to put in the book before you, it went to get printed? Surprisingly, no, you know. Uh, that's only happened once or twice in my career, and that was with the... Uh, louder than hell book I did or a couple artists that were concerned. Um, I think having the questions in front of them in advance or at least the, yeah, I mean, I gave them pretty much the, the categories. So I said, you know, we're going to talk about, uh, drugs for, for the chapter, um, take as needed for pain. Or we're going to talk about girls for the girls, girls, girls chapter. So I think everyone had a good idea of what they were getting themselves into. Um, so there were no surprises and, uh, you know, no alarms. Hmm. Like, I've been doing this show for seven years, and one of the things I did, we did a project on Kerrang! magazine in the 80s, and um, I spoke to a lot of the Kerrang! writers, and they would have gone on the road with a lot of bands, like for days on end, and I asked them about what they would put in an article and what to leave out, 
And one of the things they 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 all they all had in common was when it came to women um, on the road that some of the guys were married or they were in relationships and they had to leave that kind of stuff out. What amazed me about your book is you were able to get a lot of that in, and I'm sure you've heard the saying, "What goes on tour stays on tour." Um, that must have surprised you a little bit how open some of the musicians were to tell you things. You know, it did to a certain extent, but the ones who, who told me things like that were generally people who weren't married and uh, weren't guarding their image or had uh, been in the business for so long and had kids and had a wife and were completely stable and secure now and could laugh about it in retrospect and probably went into it with their wives' consent. <laughs> um, just, you know, and there are a few guys that kind of live by that image of being, you know, kind of uh, uh, sexual conquerors on the road. And surprisingly, one of them was uh, Dave Windorf of, of Monster Magnet. Not because he's a bad-looking guy, but, you know, not too many doom stoner metal bands really uh, specialize in or advertise their their sexual conquests. So that that's something that did surprise me. I was, I was uh, pleased that he was very uh, upfront about that. Uh, then you get maniacs like King Fowley from Deceased, and the reason he's in the book is not because they're as famous as Black Sabbath, but uh, because they're a great band, first of all, but I, I knew he had outrageous stories, and I knew he's lived the metal lifestyle for as long as he's uh, been alive, almost, and he's almost died in the process of, of you know, being in a band, um, and, and I think he's clean sober now, but he's uh, he's certainly still a wild man, um, and uh he is proud of uh, of of all that wild uh, heavy metal behavior. He's metal to the core, and and uh, you know, unashamed of it. Hmm. Were there many musicians that said no when you approached them? Well, there were musicians that said no to particular questions, which I totally respected. So yeah, some guys would not talk about girls on the road. Uh, David Draymond from Disturbed made it clear that he didn't want to talk about groupies um, or past girls he'd been with. Maybe they weren't groupies. I don't want to say that, but uh, he did tell a, a funny story about girls. He was two girls he was interested in picking up when he was in France near the beginning of the band's career, and uh, they were speaking in French. And uh, he didn't know French, but he caught their eye and looked like they had been to the show. So he asked the uh, the, the uh, maitre d at the, uh, or actually I think it was the waiter at the restaurant, if he could uh, pass a note in French to them saying that. Uh, he was interested in, in uh, their company. And <laughs> the waiter said, Monsieur, I will be a waiter, but I am not your pimp. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I thought that was, you know, that's a funny story that really doesn't reveal anything. And uh, David's an upstanding guy and a talented musician. And he's witty and funny. And that's really what I was looking for, witty and funny people who had great stories to tell. There were people I could have gone to who I chose not to just because they kind of tell rehearsed stories they, they have. They know what they're going to say going into an interview. And God bless the Scorpions, great band. But I knew that if I interviewed any of them, uh, then I wouldn't really get my questions answered. And, you know, the same goes for Iron Maiden, who are polite English gentlemen, really have, have nothing they need to reveal and, and uh, everything to lose if they say something that they didn't uh, want said or are misquoted. Mm. Did you try and avoid musicians that already had their own memoirs out there, that you'd just be rehashing the same story? Well, I tried not to tell the same stories that are, that are you know, kind of pieces of 
mythology or legend. There's uh, nothing about, uh, you know, the, the uh, well, let me think of some specific ones. Um, there's nothing about Ozzy biting a head off of a bat or biting a head off of a dove or peeing on the Alamo. There's nothing about the tragic Metallica uh, bus accident, which is anything but funny. Um, and uh, yeah, there are other such stories I avoided or, or things that I covered extensively in, in, in my first book I wanted to avoid. But I found out that these these guys were happy to talk about other things that, that they'd experienced and, and, you know, things that were hysterical and could have been in the movie Spinal Tap, you know, hence the chapter that was Spinal Tap. Um, and uh, just, you know, some horror stories from being on the road or falling off stage or, you know, near-death experiences. It's just, as a touring band, you go through so much. And a lot of that, it isn't covered in a, a profile story about a group, which generally focuses on a specific record. And, you know, like you said, journalists used to be given a week to travel with the bands. Now they're lucky if they get an hour on the phone with them. So it is uh, a different era. And, and I, I thought this was a good opportunity to get stuff out there. that was mostly entertaining, but also that some people hadn't seen before. Mm. John, the environment you're releasing the book in, everyone has gone politically correct now. There's the Me Too movement, and then you you know you motley crew toning down the dirt, and you're coming out with a book like this. Was that something you were conscious of when you were writing it? Oh yeah, I, I was very conscious of it, and and also I'm aware that people who do interviews now are much much more guarded about some of the things they they talk about. But nothing in the book, you know, there's some really wild stuff, but anything that's about women and rock and roll is is. Uh, something that happened under, uh, you know, the, the mutual agreement of both parties, it's all consensual. So anyone who got into wild, uh, sexual antics, you know, did so with, with full, uh, uh, you know, um, I guess permit, not permission is not the word, but, but, uh, agreement from both sides that this is what they wanted to do. Hmm. John, you, you couldn't have gone into this book thinking you were going to get a chapter about vomiting. <laughs> you know what? I did go into this book thinking I was going to get a chapter. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 read, uh, I read that and I'm like, oh my God, I need to take a shower after reading it. Yeah, it turned my stomach a little bit too proofreading a bunch of times. But for years, I've just always been interested in, in wild stories. I mean, everybody, I think, who, who follows metal or, or loves rock and roll, uh, you know, has a certain... Um, appreciation or, or, or love for books like No One Here Gets Out Alive, but, you know, about the Doors or Hammer of the Gods, about Zeppelin, or certainly the Dirt or, or the Motley Crue book. Uh, and, and that's all, you know, those are all memoirs that are personal and confessional, but they're filled with, with wild, wild stories of decadence and debauchery. So obviously people are interested in that stuff. And uh, I've always asked the question, so what's your best puke story? Just because sometimes there's really funny, funny stories that artists have about throwing up on other musicians or, you know, drinking too much and puking in a, a radio station or, or, you know, any, any number of strange circumstances, food poisoning, you know, in, in, in the middle of a show. So, uh, yeah, that's something I've, I've, I've asked that of, I guess, my own, uh, disturbed nature <laughs> for years. <laughs> and so I figured if I had a chapter about drinking and a chapter about drugs, it wouldn't be fair not to follow it with a chapter about puking. <laughs> <laughs> so was there any particular story 
when the, the musician was saying it to you where you went, you said to yourself, there's no fucking way that happened. I'm going to have to corroborate this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy, that's that's a good question. Um, you know, I think in cases like this, unless someone else is implicated and there's something potentially libelous or slanderous, I'll let somebody's story stand on its own. Usually, if if there's something wild or outrageous, it's uh, self-deprecatory. And uh, the only one it reflects badly on is the musician who told it, or maybe it celebrates the musician who told it. Uh, so I didn't really have to do do that much uh, follow-up research. I mean, you know, it's it's well known that certain artists have battled heroin, and some of them were very vocal about it in the in the drugs chapter and and uh, confessional and very very little glamorization. I don't think there's any glamorization of of, of heroin. Um, it's all sort of uh, cautionary tales of, oh my God, look what, look what I did. And uh, I loved the drug for a while. And, and then I got stuck addicted to it and almost died and was able to take myself out of the hole. Hmm. It's amazing, John, after I read the book, what the boredom of road life will make a musician do just to get their kicks. It's incredible, isn't it? Right. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. But, you know, these guys are on the road and girls... Um, in the van or the bus for six to 10 hours between shows. And then they get to the gig and they maybe uh, get a sound check, but there's a hurry up and wait aspect of just being around in a small town where they know nobody. Every night they're given uh, a bucket of uh, booze on their rider, beer and, and liquor and whatever. And, and surely if they're interested in drugs, it's not too hard to hook up for, for any of these bands that uh, have a name for themselves or are used to you know being able to find drugs in in uh, unusual places so um yeah and there's, there's the argument to be made that uh you know being on the road and being in a rock band is such a hard life that it sometimes leads these guys to these uh types of behaviors and these types of problems hmm. did you we attempted at all to um maybe interview a couple of road managers no i, I really wanted stories directly from the horse's mouth so to speak Hmm. When I did Louder Than Hell, I interviewed managers and uh, I interviewed some publicists. Um, I, I talked to you and some, some fans and some groupies. And, and those worked well in the context that they uh, were placed for that book. But this is really about the musicians. And, and having heard all of these stories, I didn't really feel that there was a need to uh, to go to people on the, you know, they're in the inner circle for sure, but I didn't I didn't think managers would, would really be able to. Well, they could have been able to, but I, I didn't see the need for, for any other quotes. I mean, the book's over you know, 400 pages yeah. long as it is. Yeah. Were you worried at all, John, about repetition, um, that the stories would be more or less the same, but only the names would change on them? Yeah, there was a little bit of that. And, and I left an awful lot of stuff out because, you know, there are only so many stories you can, you can read about... Uh, people falling off the stage and getting hurt or, uh, you know, someone, um, well, puke stories. I kind of had to look some of those out because I had to pick the juiciest, so to speak. <laughs> so yeah, there, there was definitely uh, a case of an embarrassment of riches hmm. um, because everyone does have these, these stories and, you know, has gone through these experience who anybody who wants to, or, or even, people who, who didn't relish it, like uh, Matt Hafey from, from Trivium 
started out as a party animal very early in his career as a teenager, and then said, you know, after I think a gig in at uh, was it Monsters of Rock or was that the King Download? Yeah, they, they and, I, and they had a great show at Download. But before it, he was doing Mountains of Coke, and uh, got really sucked up. And then he said he could barely sing on stage because he messed up his voice, and he felt he'd given a terrible performance. But in fact, he had a great performance, and people loved it. But he said, you know, that was kind of the point where he said, well, I've got to either take this seriously and have a career or, you know, party myself into the dirt. And he chose to uh, clean his act up and really uh, a focus on a, a very professional career. Hmm. Now, John, one of the names that props up a lot in the book, and I'm, he's not here, of course, to talk anymore, is Dimebag. There's some great stories about Dimebag in the book. Yeah, well, you can't talk metal and you know, outrageousness without, without mentioning Dimebag, just in the same way as you can't talk about heavy metal guitar shredding without mentioning Dimebag. You know, he was an, a larger-than-life character, and he was a part of so many people's lives, you know. Um, when I did, uh, you know, my first book, Louder Than Hell, unfortunately, he, he had already been, uh, been killed, but uh, uh, there was an awful lot of people talking about him, including all of his band members, Vinnie Paul was alive and, and, and they, they did uh, mention how much of a prankster he was and how much he loved drinking and loved life and he loved getting his band drunk. And so I knew he had to be a big part of this book as well. And it, especially with his pranks, cause they're just hysterical. And I'm not sure everyone's aware of the extent to which he would spend a large amount of money and uh, go to great lengths to uh, have fun with his fellow musicians. None of it was malicious. It was all, it was all just, uh, ha ha, look what, uh, you know, look what happened to you. It was funny. You'll get me back one day, but, uh, you know, I'll get you better. Um, and everyone loved him. So, um, I know there's a lot of material about him, but, but, um, I, I felt I almost had to include all of it because the stories are, are really larger than life, just like he was. Hmm. Now you have a chapter in it about um, the crowd surfing and moshing, and I want to ask you spe- specifically: what's the weirdest thing you've ever seen someone in the crowd do at a concert? Well, yeah, that that section is split up into weird things people have seen and horrible things that have happened to people. And uh, I, I will say, uh, you know, one of my favorite bands, Anthrax, um, who I had the good luck of working with and, and uh, writing Scott Ian's book with him, um, you know, the uh, I'm the Man book. Uh, but I was in an Anthrax show in college uh, near the front row, and uh, I that was the last mosh pit I went into because suddenly someone jumped from the stage. Uh, instead of diving forward, they dove feet first, and uh, a combat boot clocked me right in the forehead. I went down like a sack of flour and uh, fortunately didn't, didn't uh, break anything or... Uh, you know, suffer any major injuries, but I had a huge, uh, you know, egg on my forehead, a giant swollen uh, uh, forehead from the, <laughs> from the blow. I, I suddenly felt like I'd been knocked out. Um, so that was the last mosh pit I went into. Uh, but as far as what I've seen, yeah, you know, I mean, I've seen lots of blood, lots of horrible fights, and, and I just can't remember any really funny or, or weird things. Lots of topless girls. Um, but again, it's like in this book, if someone told me that, I'd be like, okay, that's, that's not a story. You know, um, I wanted to get stories from people who, who 
you would you'd be surprised to, to read about. Um, I have seen some pretty, well, it wasn't, it wasn't a metal show. It was a band called Sex Art, and they were in, in Boston. And there was a couple that was uh, practically having sex on, in the middle of a, it wasn't quite a pit because it was an industrial show, so it was more of a bouncy, dancey kind of thing. <laughs> but these guys were, were seriously going at it and grinding against one another, and that was... Uh, they became part of the show. <laughs> well, John, what, so I saw something weird about, well, it wasn't weird, it was harrowing, actually, because I, I was not involved in it, but I, I was in the end. I, I was interviewing Ted Aguilar from Death Angel before a show in Worcester, Massachusetts. And um, after the interview, I went out to watch the band. And the Palladium in Worcester, it's, it's called different levels. They're all raised levels. So I was on the second level, and the pit was in the, right in front of the stage. And... Death Angel came on, the band are playing. Next thing, these two guys bring out this girl, out cold. Some guy jumped off the stage, clocked her on the head. Put, mm. They put her down right in front of me. She's out cold. And then just went back and kept moshing. Just left her there. So I ended up having to call over security. They called an ambulance and everything. It was like, holy shit. Like, you got to be careful of these things, you know? Yeah, well, good for you for being a good Samaritan. Um, that reminds me of a show I was at. It wasn't metal but it was kind of the kind of show metal kids would go to it was jesus wizard who were an alternative band that were extremely unpredictable and had a lot of metal elements and some amazing musician if you musicianship if you don't know him i'd urge you to check him out but uh their singer david yao would always get insanely drunk and stage spent half his time stage diving in the pit that was kind of what he was known for and he'd inevitably get injured sometimes but one time they were playing and he's on stage you know kind of prowling around and and ranting into the mic. And this giant guy, this guy was like an ogre who had these shifty eyes and kind of looked like a serial killer, uh, walked up and started licking the ground where David had spit. And he was licking up David's spit, and it was kind of gross. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I looked at him and he kind of moved away a little bit. I was like, huh, this is, this is a, a weird dude. But, uh, you know, hey, it takes all types. <laughs> and then, uh, unfortunately, the guy came up behind David and uh, picked him up like a, like an all-star wrestler might do and dove with him into the crowd. I don't know what this guy was thinking, but yeah, he was about five feet tall and, you know, 120 pounds wet. So he was out like a light. Uh, yeah, I was unconscious. And uh, the crowd beat the living shit out of this uh, giant dude. Um, and could, so they were just like kicking him in the head and the ribs and pounding on him. And it was horrifying, but at the same time, it was... Uh, it was fascinating. And, and, uh, you know, I mean, if you're going to treat an artist like that, you probably have it, uh, have it coming to you. Mm. Now, one of the things I did enjoy about the book and you nearly, it's towards the end of every chapter. You always have one guy who's the voice of reason, be it someone like Dee Schneider or someone like that, who's never done drugs, never drank. And basically, says that whatever all the rest of you guys did in the chapter you were fucking idiots <laughs> <laughs> um was that was that yeah. was that deliberate was that something you wanted to like have a balance in each chapter that not everything was like outrageous that there was some of the bands that didn't saw that kind of stuff but they looked afar and aghast at it yeah i, I did want to present both sides to the issue i, I don't want anything glamorized and it's hard not to glamorize when you're telling outrageous stories that are hysterical, but that's just what they are. They're funny stories that happened at a time of outrageousness and, and in an era of debauchery. Um, and uh, they're meant 
you know, surely for entertainment value. And then I think some of the people who come out against these, these activities and this behavior are telling entertaining stories as well. Um, the, the, uh, you know, two guys from Lamb of God, well, actually all of Lamb of God probably did a lot of partying back in the day. Um, their frontman Randy Blythe is the most famous for it, of course, and he got clean and sober, uh, and still talks about his, his wild drinking days and, and does in the book, but, you know, as cautionary tales. But guitarist Mark Morton um, said, hey, man, you know, I, I've got lots of crazy stories and, and wild stuff did happen, but you know what? I don't, I don't want to talk about it in your book. And I'm like, okay, you know, I ask why. He's like, yeah, you know, I, I don't want to, it's not that I don't want to glamorize it, but I don't even want to put it out there as something that I enjoyed because I didn't. This is something that I did. And at the time, maybe I enjoyed it, but in the long run, it bit me in the ass, and if I kept going that way, I would have either been out of the band or I wouldn't even be here. Mm. I was totally respectful of that, and and you know I, I I'm like, well, can I quote you on that? He's like, absolutely. So you know, I did, and um, it's hard to have a chapter about drug abuse without uh, including the flip side, and a lot of these guys who were the most abused, who abused themselves the hardest do tell that flip side because uh, if you survive heroin addiction, you've probably, you know, survived it because you, uh, you, you gave it up under a, a lot of duress and, um, pain and, and, uh, you know, the, what you go through if you beat addiction and, and those guys tend to talk about it almost like they're, you know, going to call steps or, or, or something. But, um, yeah, I think in the cases when there was something crazy or, 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 or outrageous, um, and the groupies for sure, I wanted to balance that by you know, people saying, oh, my God, like, you know, how many chicks those people have been with before they, like, come up to you? Yeah, no, thanks. But it's all a choice, you know. These these dudes travel and find themselves in these these wild types of uh, environments. And uh, a lot of them are, like, kids in the candy store. They're really young, and they're, they're living off the memories and the, uh, the, the stories that they've heard from their heroes. So, you know, they, they do get drawn into that sex, drugs, and rock and roll kind of kind of lifestyle, but some don't, you know, there've been some straight edge musicians that have just been ferocious and, and, uh, amazing. And they've just avoided that type of, uh, behavior. And I think that's happening more and more these days, you know, I think so many people around with cell phones filming everything and all this stuff has happened. And there've been so many things about what can happen if you do choose a life of sex and drugs and rock and roll that a lot of current bands who want to have careers, you know, choose to, uh, avoid it and, and stay more sober on the road. And also they're touring a lot longer, you know, because no one's selling records. Yeah. Tours uh, last for three quarters of a year now. Yeah. So so before I leave you go, John, um, after doing a book like this, you probably would have gone in with certain notions of what road life was like. Was there anything you learned from doing the book about road life that surprised you? Um, I you know. I, <laughs> I really can't say there is because I kind of knew what happened and and uh, that's why I wrote the book because I wanted to uh, put these stories out there and show how how outrageous and and uh, entertaining and you know sad and horrific and the, maybe the one thing would be just just the uh, the fact that so many of these guys are so dedicated that they'll get in their little van and spend three months in the winter driving through uh, icy roads and mm-hmm. horrific weather conditions. And they won't miss a show, you know, highways will be shut down and, uh, 
you know, there'll be uh, danger alerts and crashes everywhere, and they'll find their way around and either get to the show or, you know, in some cases, unfortunately, uh, have horrible accidents or minor fender benders. But just the dedication of these guys, you know, just to play night after night, and it's their passion, and it's what they do. But to go against those odds, you know, so, or, or, or to risk your your life in, in, in those adversary weather conditions. That's, that's, I guess, the one thing that, that uh, really made me go, whoa. Especially someone like, uh, oh my God, John Baisley from, from uh, you know, Baroness was involved in probably the most horrific bus accident that uh, a band could live through. Um, he was in a bus that drove off the road and was literally flying above the treetops. Yeah. And he made peace with, you know, with himself and figured, I'm dying. This is, it. This is my, my last you know, my last stand and, and, you know, thank God he survived, but he's, he's still got battle scars from it for sure. I, I was swearing that I was like, I was reading that in the chapter on, on the accidents. And then you got, you got to a certain point with that. And then you said to be continued. And I was swearing at you. I was like, John, why the fuck did you do that? I had to go forward a few pages <laughs> to find out what happened. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a cliffhanger in a uh, TV serial, right? Yeah. Um, well, I did that, you know, for two reasons. One, I did want to provide that sort of sort of suspension of uh, action, but also I didn't want any of these quotes to run for pages and pages and pages. Uh, in particular, there's that story, which is extremely long, and then you've got a story like um, the uh, experience that possessed vocalist uh, Jeff Becerra had. Um, when he was living a, uh, uh, you know, kind of outrageous, uh, wild, uh, gangster life almost. And, uh, and in the process he was shot, uh, and, and, uh, then these, these gangsters came around and, you know, tried to finish him off and he was somehow able to stay alive. And it's, it's explained in great detail how, um, yeah, that's a story that after he told me, I knew he'd been shot, but I didn't know everything he'd gone through. Hmm. Um, so I had to split that up, but uh, yeah, that's that's a harrowing moment. Yeah. So, so John, can you tell me what book you're working on now? <laughs> wow, I just uh, this just came out. Um, yeah, you know, right now I've I've got a couple of projects that are kind of irons in the fire, but you know, there are no contracts signed yet. Um, I, I've done a number of of um, authorized biographies with musicians in the past, mm-hmm. so it's very likely that that will be uh, my next you know book. I really love. You know, delving into to a full full life and and, and career uh, of a musician and and uh, uh, getting the uh, comprehensive perspective that they have looking looking back on uh, on their life and uh, the the book I did with Al Jurgensen in ministry I think was was uh, you know especially uh, um, I, I'd say it's it was enthralling because he was completely open about a, a life of of debauchery and addiction and wasn't gun shy about telling anything. And he's funny as hell. So, you know, it's, it was a story that's, uh, uh, harrowing, but at the same time, hysterical. Uh, and then I, I've had a close relationship with Scott Ian from Anthrax over the years. So I worked with him on his book and the other one I've done to date was, um, by agnostic fronts vocalist, Roger Moret. And, uh, he had just, I'd known him, I'd loved the band, and he gave me such great quotes for Louder Than Hell that I, I got in touch with him. I said, hey, man, you know, you have had this wild life. Do you want to talk about it? Do you want to do a book? And the timing was right, and he said yes. So 
just got to find that next artist whose timing is right and whose schedule is right and uh, agree on the terms. And uh, hopefully we'll have something else in the works soon. Mm. Oh, I got one more question um, that just came to me. Did any of the musicians, when you were talking to them, ask you about what some of the stories the other musicians told you? Were they curious? Only if they were friends with certain musicians. Okay. You'd be like, oh man, did, did you talk to uh, Dave Windorf? Did he tell you? What, what did he tell you? Because you know, some of them know stories from from their uh, peers, but uh, probably don't want to uh, reveal what some of those stories are. Because, you know, some of them are personal and, and uh, people might want to tell other musicians, but not journalists. I totally understand that and respect that. Um, so yeah, there were there were some some dudes who, who were friends with other guys who were curious. Like uh, you know, people wanted to know what, what Gary Holt had to say you know, from from Slayer and Exodus because of course he was such an integral part of the San Francisco thrash scene. And their vocalist Paul Bailoff was a madman who's sadly no longer with us. But um, you know, Gary has done it all and seen it all and lived to tell about it and is now a vegan and uh, a healthy dude. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, was getting getting those grand uh, Slayer gigs for a long time, which sadly, sadly has come to an end. But uh, I'm sure he's going to do amazing things with uh, with Exodus and probably other people in the future. Yeah. So the book is out now, John. It's called Raising Hell. I highly recommend it. I thought it's a great read. Well, thank you. Do you want to give out all the social media sites and maybe tell people where they can pick up a copy? Yeah. Um, you know, it's available at uh, pretty much any major online outlet, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, etc. And then uh, independent bookstores, uh, Barnes & Noble, the bookstore has it. And I've been told, it, you know, major and, and uh, minor uh, retailers are, are selling the book. I haven't been out of my house because, uh, well, actually I have. I've been doing lots of promotional interviews and whatnot, but um, I haven't walked into a bookstore to check. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I have seen it on Amazon and, and Barnes and & Noble, and um, the, the responses have been pretty good by people who've, who've written, uh, you know, who've, who've read it and, and uh, write to the site. Um, so, so that's exciting. Um, you know, one, one thing I would like to add, though, is um, this is a 400-page book, but it's nothing that you have to read from front to back. And it's certainly nothing that uh, you're going to need to read in in two days or feel like oh my god I've got to I've got to get through all of this at once because I can't stop reading because you can literally stop reading at any time and pick it up and you won't forget what you've already read and if you have it doesn't matter uh, my agent calls it a, a bathroom read <laughs> you just pick it up in the bathroom and continue where you left left off or, or turn to a random page. Or uh, after you've read it, you go back to your favorite parts and reread them again and again, and that's really what it was. Uh, what it was meant to be, and uh, you can read backwards to forwards or forwards to backwards, however you want. You know, it's not a typical uh, history book that, that requires a lot of slogging to get through. Mm. All right, well, John, I'm going to leave you go. I'm sure you've got more interviews to do. I uh, loved the book, by the way. I really did. Well, thank you so much. All right, how'd so- you did? Keep keep the books coming, and uh, you know I'll keep buying them and helping you promote them. All right. Well, thank you so much. All right, John. Have a good rest of the day. You too. Okay. Bye. There you go. There's uh, Richie's conversation with John Wiederhorn all about raising hell, the backstage tales from the lives of metal legends, and uh, you know I always wish that uh, the dude that had done the the backstage tales volume one had done like subsequent volumes as well. So this is kind of along the same lines. So about I enjoyed James it. Tony.
Was that the guy who had the backstage book? I think so. You had him on the show, didn't you? Yeah, I did have him on the show. Yeah, Yeah, he's one of our first guests. That was an enjoyable book, but it's nowhere near as extensive as that one. It's not. Probably because his is self-published. John's got a lot more experience with in the writing field too. So. And he knows a lot more guys, obviously. Who, yeah. You know, yeah. But that was a good book too. I, I, I enjoyed that one. I wish he'd done like the, the volume two and, you know, kept well, on should've. going with it, you know? Hey, that's the way it goes in the, in the, in the if you're an author now, you know, you gotta, I know you gotta sell books or uh-huh. you're not, you're not, you're not going back to the well, you know? <laughs> so the other guy you have on this week, which is, which is cool is, is Andreas Kisser from Sepultura and they've got their, their new one out Quadra. And it's funny because, you know, in the interview, you you tried to talk to him about this album being a concept album. And he, I don't know if it was the language barrier or what it was, but he just, I don't think he was getting what you were saying. No. Because, because even even if you read any press about this album, again and again and again, they talk about Sepultura's new concept album, Quadra. It's it's in like um, all kinds of reviews. How big how big a fan are you with Sepultura? Not really. You're not really. Yeah, not you're, really. You're like me with Slayer, aren't you? I'm a bigger fan of Slayer than you are. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sepultura are probably the heaviest band that I like. Uh-huh. I've liked them since Arise. Um, of course, the difference with between Sepultura and Slayer is that Slayer does one thing and they do it really well. Granted, they had a step change with Rain and Blood, but ever since then, that's been their formula. Sepultura, from album to album, you're really not sure what you're going to get. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're, you're not going to get a uh, uh, Roots out of Slayer, ever. True. You know, so they, they've had some pretty dramatic changes sonically in there. Uh, now, mem- granted, they've had lineup changes, voice. too. Yeah. So, yeah, you have, a, you have a big thing there as well. So, yeah. Yeah. So, they've, they've done, I think... I think this might be their eighth album with Derek Green. I think Against was 99... I think they've done seven or eight albums since, and they ha- they have done concept records. Alex is a concept record about a clockwork um, orange. I nearly said clockwork angels. <laughs> yeah, the, the mo- <laughs> clockwork orange movie. Yeah, uh, I think Dante. Was, I was going to say that's got to be that's a concept, concept one, album right? as well. I think is it Dante Eleven or Dante? I, I can't remember. That was was that the last one that Igor was on? Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, Machine Messiah was. A concept record as well, so they have dabbled in them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then Quadra had, had a new one, but I've never had Andreas on. Um, love the band, Jesus. If you if you're not a fan of the band, um, just listen to it. To listen to Eli Casagrande drum, uh-huh. he is absolutely incredible. He's only, I think he's twenty five, twenty six years old, hmm. um, and the other guys are. Andreas and Paul are in their 50s. Yeah. And he, Eli helps write all the songs as well. He's mm. an unbelievable yeah. drummer. Yeah. Like I said, I've never, like, you know, it's not like I don't dislike them. It's just that, uh, you know, there's a lot of bands to listen to and, and that, you know, there's things that, I, there's songs that I like from them, but it's not like one of these things where I'm like, oh, good, the next Sepultura album is out and all that. And in fact, years ago, I had gotten shit, um, when we were part of the cast iron ring and we had done, um, I think Jay and I had done an episode and it was all about, um, um, can you remember what it was? But there was, um, oh, it, it was all, it was, it was black metal, but it was kind of a tongue in cheek. It wasn't black metal as in black metal, but it was more of uh, basically black people in metal. 
Oh, okay. And so we talked about, you know, a lot of different bands um, on there. But then, of course, Sepultura comes up because of, of Derek yeah. Green. Um, and then it just so happened that the song sample that I played, because I was like, I'm going through and I'm like, that particular song spoke to me. And it was didn't happen to be a non-Derek Green song. And, and I got shit from some of the other people in the Cast Iron Ring. And it's like, <laughs> fuck me, you know? You're not really a fan. Yeah. Yeah. But... The- a lot of people, Sepultura died when Max left. Uh-huh. And Igor hung around for a few records, and then he left. Yeah. Um, I'm a big fan of the Derek Green stuff as well. I always feel that all their albums are solid. Some I like more than others. Yeah. Machine Messiah, the last one I thought was tremendous. Uh-huh. Uh, I haven't lived with this one. as You know, I've only had it about a week or so. So at the moment, I'm I'm really liking it, but... You are right. Their, their albums can be very varied. They, mm-hmm. they bring a lot of, you know, their own influences from Brazil. Right. Instrumentation and stuff like that. Yeah. They've always incorporated that into the music. Yeah. And they've done it on the, on the new record as well. Uh, yeah, it's not a straight up metal record. Um, yeah, they are an acquired taste. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not going to lie, but I, I'm just a big fan. Yeah. It's, it's not, they're not a band that I reach for a lot, uh-huh. but when I do play them, I play the shit out of them for a yeah. while. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, and they're not a bad band. It's just like I've got lots of other bands I'm listening to, and and uh, yeah, it's like okay, I could listen to this or something else, and it just yeah, I've never really just kind of been one of those things where I'm like, oh yeah, Sepultura, and been a huge fan. It's like you can't be a fan of every band. No, you can't. <laughs> you can't. You wouldn't have much of a wallet left if you were. You know, I mean, on the other hand, you know, like I'm like massive. Arch Enemy fan, and you're like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But you're the para- you, you like a lot of European para metal, like some I do. of the symphonic stuff. Yeah, and to me, it's like, yeah, yeah. You know, it's just like ABBA with with you know guitars. <laughs> <laughs> Not that bad, <laughs> man. <laughs> I mean, you got. I like some of it. I was gonna say, you, Europe touches on that. We'll yeah, have them do. coming up in a few weeks. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's like I said, everyone's got, you know, got their kind of their niche things. And yeah, for me, I, I, I really like, uh, you know, Arch Enemy, especially the, uh, um, all the, uh, Angela Gossow stuff. Yeah. More so than the, than the Alyssa stuff. Oh, so you're going way back. Oh yeah. You're the early stuff. Yeah. How many records have they got? Oh crap. See, some of these bands are, they've got a lot. Some of these bands, are, I, I think that are pretty new. And then someone tells me, oh yeah, they're, they're 20 years old. Uh-huh. Like, what? Really? Like Slipknot are 20 years old. Yeah. I'm like, are they fucking 20 years old? But oh, even, yeah. you know, but there's even other oddball ones, like Semblant. They actually got a new album coming out. Freaking love them, too. Okay. And, they, and they're, uh, you know, they got they got guttural, they got clean. It's really, people kind of would listen and go, really, you like them? But yeah, I do. Yeah, there's something, there's a, there's a, there's that groove part, there's kind of that groove part of, of Sepultura mm-hmm. that's, that, that Semblant has and their stuff. Um, I think... I think they're still on Ellison's label. They were on some independent. They were hard as hell to get albums from. And then then Dave signed them. And then it was easier to get their stuff. I think they're still What's on Dave's label. Album. EMP, isn't it? Yeah. EMP. Yeah. yeah. Ellison Music Productions, I think. Okay. Yeah. Um, You're speaking of Ellison. Let's spend a minute. What do you think of the Megadeth, Lamb of God, In Flames? And once again, I can't think of the fourth band. Uh, Dave announced a, a tour of the U.S. later this year. What do you think of that lineup? Yeah, they're playing the Pavilion. In yeah, Boston, they are. June twenty first. They are. 
<laughs> Hold on. I have tickets. I don't have tickets. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had I, I had a pre-sale opportunity. I don't have tickets. Um, I'm I'm not a huge Lamb of God fan either. And speaking of which, they're in that book a lot too. Yeah, Mark Morton is yeah. in there. Randy yeah. Blight is in there Randy's a lot. In there, yeah. Um, I don't remember seeing Willie Adler in there. He must. I think he was. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm not a huge Lamb of God fan. Um, so I'm kind of like, uh, if I'm going to buy that and I'm going to really go for essentially one band, I, I don't know. I, I saw it and I was like, oh, it's a Sunday night, right? I think it's a Sunday night. I believe it is here. Yeah. And I thought about it, but, and yeah, I might change my mind, but yeah. Kind of shows. You know, I kind of did that with, um, when they toured with, uh, what was it? With Soulfly? And somebody else. And uh, did we go to that one? No, not Soulfly. I've never seen Soulfly. I I saw Megadeth in New Jersey a few years ago on the Gigantor with Butcher Babies opened, then Metal Church. But then- we saw them. We saw them at House of Blues, and I've seen them at House of Blues twice. Yes, and there was Can- one time you were there. Yeah, that was the uh, Super Collider. Right, but who was with them? Oh, no idea. Wasn't Soulfly? I'd remember if it was Fear Factory. Fear Factor. Yeah, yeah, Fear that's Factory. right. It was Factor. Yeah, right. Um, and again, it was kind of like you know, you, the only thing you wanted on the bill was uh, um, the last band. It was kind of like, uh, yeah, I, I'm the same with this bill. There's, there's a lot of people, you know, big Lama God fans. Um, I'm not one of them. Yeah, uh, they've had a successful career. They're probably twenty odd years old as well. Yeah, they've been out there for a while. Yeah. yeah. Um yeah. but one third of my emails every day are either just announced VIP pre sale <laughs> right. Yeah. Or um your the other one I'm getting from Live Nation and I, I always laugh is um here's your personalized lineup of concerts. And every you look night. at them you look at them, right? Yeah. And it's like there's no fucking way I'd go to 90% of these. Uh-huh. You're throwing darts at a dartboard trying yeah. to get me to buy. Yeah, I get the same email buy. every night. Yeah. And, um, but there's just so many gigs. Yeah. Um, Chris Sinzak put up a great, a great post the other day that the only band not touring this summer are the Beatles. <laughs> and uh, there's a hint of truth in that, actually. Because yeah. <laughs> every other fucking band seems to be out there. Yeah. There's a lot of competition. I, I, mean, I definitely, yeah, I'm definitely going to a lot of shows. At, uh, and, you know, I, I still might change my mind on the Megadeth one, but uh, I don't know. Uh, would, the, would the cancer scare make you go that you might, you know, Mustaine no. mightn't be around for much longer? No. If if something goes wrong, which I hope it doesn't, but you know what I mean? It's yeah, like, no, that, isn't, that wouldn't drive my decision. It wouldn't make you no. go, no? No. Okay. It's interesting that they're headlining here. As far as I know, is it a co-headliner or headlining? I'd, I've seen them at the top of the yeah. posters. And I believe they were, they're in Europe, or they were just in Europe. Oh, they were supporting Five Finger Death Punch. Yeah. That was weird, I thought. Yeah, they're pretty big over there. I know. Yeah. Good band. Five Finger Death Punch? Yeah, good band. Yeah, another band I don't know much about, yeah, except band. for the funny yeah. beards. No, they're good. Yeah, I, like them. <laughs> I like them, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, anyways, we, well, now that we've gone down a rat hole, why don't we say uh, we run your interview with uh, with Andreas? Mm-hmm. All right. Hello, uh, may I speak with Richie, please? Yeah, is that Andreas? Yes. Good morning. Good morning. 
Hey, how are you, man? I'm all right. So where are you? I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Oh, you're in Brazil. I'm um, I'm just outside of Boston in the U.S. All right. Um, cool, man. Yeah, I've uh, I've had a lot of people in Ireland asking me when you're going to go back and play there. <laughs> yeah, we have a, a festival confirmed in uh, in Ireland. It's going to be our first festival ever in Ireland. You know, we'll be really excited about it. Okay. For June, July. Not sure which which date, but uh, around that. Okay, excellent. So one of the first questions I always ask the guitar players, and I've never spoken to you before, uh, how many guitars do you think you have in your house? Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I have a, you know, I'm not a, a extra, you know, a collector of guitars per se, you know. Uh, I have a few signature models, like, you know, Stevie Ray Vaughan, I have a Buddy Guy and Tony Iommi, uh, among others. But uh, basically, I have the guitars I use throughout my career. You know, I work with many different uh, companies and, and brands. I still work with Jackson and Charvel and Fender, you know, for more than 20 years. But I also work with uh, Fernandez Guitar. I work with the ESP, you know, and uh, a Brazilian brand here called Sazy, which I, I also put a signature series of myself for a few, for two, two years to come out here. But anyway, I mean, my, I, I, I don't know. I, I get new instruments um, for for new tours and stuff every two or three years or so. But I'm not a guy that really spent too much money on guitar. You know, I think uh, it's kind of healthier yeah. <laughs> for a guitar player. You know, once you start, you know, it's, it's crazy. It's funny, but um, I, I spoke to a guitar player last week and I asked him that question, and straight off the top of his head, he told me he had sixty in the house. <laughs> Yeah, I might have uh, around that. I mean, but be because I have some some guitars at home and uh, some at the storage, uh, some guitars in Europe and stuff. You know, stuff that I use on on the road and everything. And, um, but when I go to the studio, I you know I usually take uh, like um, five, four to five of my guitars, but the older guitars. You know, the old Charvel, the old Jackson Rennie Rhodes. Uh, my old uh, Fender, you know, with the the pickup and everything, and uh, but um, but also in the last album I used a lot of uh, extra guitars that are not the the world mine, you know. Jens Borgen, the producer, mm -hmm. he has a lot of instruments there, so I use a lot of different guitars throughout the recording. But uh, I have my own guitars there, of course. Hmm. Andreas, have you ever gotten rid of a guitar and regretted it afterwards? Yeah, basically my first guitar, you know, I don't have it uh, for some reason. Uh, I I sold the guitar and um and I got a another both both of my first two guitars were Brazilian you know Brazilian models but they were very decent made they, they were not shitty at all I had um, the first guitar called Giannini which is a, a brand that is uh, here in Brazil they came from Italy a family they came from Italy like more than hundred years ago and they started building acoustic guitars which they still do, you know, they still do a lot of great instruments, but for some uh, part uh, of their history, you know, they made electric guitars, uh, and that was my first guitar. And then I changed the guitar to another Brazilian uh, brand called Fink, like a Les Paul, uh, you know, model and stuff. And I sold that guitar, you know, and uh, but I, con I consider my first guitar my, my Charvel, you know, which I use on every Sepultura album since Beneath the Remains and uh, uh, with a lot of stickers and everything. Mm -hmm. I regret not having my first two guitars, for sure, you know. It would be yeah. cool to have them here. Yeah. I had no idea where they are. <laughs> is that the guitar, the Charvel, is that the one you write all the music on now? 
No, not really. I that guitar stays uh, stays in a, in a storage. You know, usually um, I use other guitars. You know, to to write here at home. I have an SG with no you know locks. You know, no Floyd Rose and stuff that helps to mess around with different tunings and stuff. And uh, uh, it's just to keep ideas. I'm not really too much interested on the tone. You know, like uh, it's just really to keep ideas and, and work on demos. Mm. Now you spent a lot of time in Sweden now recording the last couple of records with Jens. What what's your experience like of staying in that country? Because I'm sure when you're on the road, you never really get a chance to experience what it's like to actually live there. That's true. I mean, uh, even though we stayed for six weeks there for the the second time, you know, the first time with Messiah was an amazing experience. And uh, you know, Scandinavia in general, Sweden, Denmark, Norway are. You know, for me, are the the most developed countries in the world. You know, probably uh, alongside Japan or so. You know, because uh, you know, very organized. You know, very respectful. Everything works uh, great. And and we were there in um, you know, in the, in the spring and stuff was not cold at all, which is you know, for us Brazilians, <laughs> I mean, snow and cold it's really brutal. <laughs> I guess it's brutal for everyone, but especially for us. You know, but. Uh, you know, we had a great time, you know, a fantastic time. Jens has a, an, an amazing setup. He lives in a, in a, in a great house there in, in, in a city called Odebro. You know, we did the drums in Stockholm in a bigger studio, and then we went to his home studio, which is amazing, you know, very well set up, and, and we stayed there as well, you know, so we could focus really uh, 100% only on the album, you know, which is very helpful, you know, when you are... Uh, recording such an album like Quadra, you know, it's very complex, you know, a lot of different ideas and experiments and stuff. So you really have to be very focused, you know, on, on the album. And, and being there in Sweden was was a perfect choice, you know, for this. Mm. Now, you, I saw a video of you talking about the record and you said that this one was the most difficult one you've ever done. Uh, what, why, why was that? Why specifically was this one really difficult for you? Uh, because we're getting better, you know, we really are. I mean, uh, music and life in general, we really never stop learning. You know, it's up to you really to keep your mind and eyes and ears open, you know. And we have the privilege to travel the world, to meet so so many different people and bands and musicians and, you know, and uh, people from all over uh, the different parts of society and, you know, lawyers, whatever, doctors and stuff, you know. Everything really... Uh, it, it's an influence for you to keep uh, learning and to keep uh, improving, you know. And, um, you know, and, and since Eloy Casagrande joined the band, you know, all nine years ago, you know, um, he's an amazing, fantastic drummer, you know. I never played with such a, a great musician, you know, like him. And he's very young, very professional, you know, very focused and and... You know, everything started with me and him, you know, working some riffs and drum loops and stuff, you know, doing the basic structure of the songs and stuff. And we challenge each other, you know. We we love to play better. We like to play better. And in this last 10 years or so, you know, I've been studying more the electric guitar because of, most of the time I put my time, you know, on, on the, the acoustic guitar because I study classical guitar, you know, as much as I can. But... Uh, I, I put my effort and energy more on the guitar playing, you know, and uh, I think we developed and evolved a lot, you know. So we wrote, you know, more complex music We that we had really to be prepared to record, you know. So in that sense, it was difficult, but it uh, was amazing, you know, because it was very motivating, you know. 
mm. was very exciting and really to face a challenge like that, you know, that's the only way you grow up, you know, otherwise you'll be keep doing the same shit over and over again. And it's very boring, you know, especially in arts that uh, we have so many different possibilities nowadays with internet, you know, and, and you have uh, such a connection with such the, uh, information, you know, that, uh, you, you transform that in music somehow, you know, and, uh, so in that sense it was difficult, but like I said, you know, it was, was an amazing process. We had a lot of fun as well, you know, doing it. And uh, we're very happy with the result, you know. Mm. Now, when Eli joined the band, did you know that he was going to be such an integral part of the songwriting or did you only think he was going to be playing the drums and he wouldn't really contribute to the songs? No, not at all. I mean, uh, I knew he could bring a lot to Sepultura, you know, and his drumming and his uh, arrangement of the drums and stuff, it's very inspiring, you know, to me to write. I wrote a lot of stuff at home, you know, in the early stages with drum machine and stuff, just trying to give a direction, you know, with the concept in mind, you know, dividing the album for 12 songs, you know, very early in the process, we knew that, you know. So it was easier really to choose the right song to be at the right place in the right running order of the album, you know. And Eloy, you know, is still a, a very motivating to work with him. Like I said, we challenge each other, you know, to see if we could, uh, like a chess game, you know, like a checkmate. And, and I did it once, you know, on the song Pentagram, that's a part, I don't remember what, that he was very difficult for him, you know, to grasp and really to work out the song. And, uh, and for me, it was like a, a victory, <laughs> mm. you know, like really to, to try to, to make, go to that point, you know, to explore the unknown to go to a territory that nobody knows, because that's where the art is made. You know, otherwise you'll be doing stuff that you did before or copying other artists and stuff, you know. We mm. have to go to the unknown territory really to do something new, mm. you know, and that's what we are uh, uh, always looking for, you know. And that's very exciting. That's very alive, you know. That's what music's all about. It's mm. not a product, you know. It's, it's a consequence of your, 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 your spirits and your... Uh, energy and stuff, and it's very alive, you know. Um, even though we have this image of the, the music compacted in a CD or whatever, you know, uh, music's on stage, you know, alive. We, we're going to develop the songs in, in many different ways. Who knows, you know, life. So uh, it's a great feeling to have that, you know, and, and that's why Quadra also feels more alive and more organic, you know, especially compared to Machine Messiah. Mm. Now, a lot of your more recent albums are, are concept-based. Do you know when you've finished a record and you're going to start another one that it's going to be concept-based? Like, do you, wh Where do you get the ideas for the concept? Do you have a list of concepts that you want to tackle maybe in the future? Like, How does all that work? Yeah, I mean, uh, if you don't have a concept, you don't do anything. You know, It's not lately. I mean, it was always like that. You know, why you get married or why you have a kid? You know, everything involves a concept an objective, you know, a goal. And uh, having a goal, it's already a concept, you know. Uh, let's say, for instance, for the Beatles, if you take love and the word love away from the Beatles, you know, they're done. <laughs> yeah. They never existed, you know. Mm -hmm. But they always had the concept in their mind, you know. That's why they express that concept through their music and poetry and, and et cetera, you know. So uh, why not organize uh, the, the concept in a way that we can put many different ideas and talking about, you know, uh, the same uh, event or the same inspiration, you know. So, uh, yeah, the concept is, is the most fundamental thing on any anything you do in life, you know. I mean, I, I want to open a studio or I want to open a, 
uh, a bakery or stuff. That's a concept itself, you know, what I'm going to do with my life and stuff, you know. And art, you know, it, it, it helps really to, to give different points of views and options about our reality, you know, which is uh, amazing. It's very free, you know, it's very freedom, you know, you can really, especially after artists like, you know, Picasso and Igor Stravinsky, you know, and Jimi Hendrix, you know, they really open new possibilities for music and the instruments and the evolution of the guitar and et cetera, you know. So uh, I think the concept is really important, you know. That's why uh, every time we have, you know, to stop and, and really think about a new album, uh, the first thing I do, I go to the internet and research uh, the uh, books and documentaries and the stuff I have here at my house, you know, my my library and stuff and, and talk to friends and people, whatever, you know, the, the band and... Uh, Especially me and Derek, you know, we talk a lot about different topics and uh, finding the, the, the song titles and what we're going to talk about. So uh, Quadra, you know, the concept of Quadra, as Machine Messiah and Dante Alighieri, everything we did in the past came very early in the process, which helps, you know, us really to build everything around the concept. Mm. When you're writing songs now, do you start writing for the next record the minute you get off the road or can you actually write on the road? I write all the time, you know, regardless if it's for Sepultura or for a movie soundtrack or for the different side projects I have, you know. I write all the time. I mean, of course, it's different when we stop and, you know, now we need to do a Sepultura album, a new one. You know, you put your energy and effort around that. And, and then I, I research my own ideas, you know, that I wrote throughout the year on the road and stuff and, and see if something really, it's a starting point there. You know, it's really good to have uh, random ideas that could inspire, you know, different situations because, uh, you know, to write for Sepultura is very different to write for a soundtrack for a, a movie, for instance, you know, so uh, and the same risk can work both ways, you know, it, it only depends how we're going to arrange that and, and what's the purpose of the song, you know, and then again, we need a concept, you know, to make a choice. You know, is this riff works here or there better? You know, uh, according to the pro to the the concept and stuff. You know, uh, it's easier you know to choose where to put the riff and etc. Mm. Andreas, do you find it easy to let songs go, or are you are you like a perfectionist that you you always think you can do it better? Oh yeah, for sure. I don't say perfectionist because I I, I never really grasped the idea of perfection. You know. You know, in the present, it's, everything happens, you know, not only perfection, but imperfection as well. So the balance is really important, you know. Uh, if you are a perfectionist, you, you really too much attached to rules, you know, and, and limits, which are great in a sense, but you have really to let go a, a lot of times, you know, really let the feeling and or, or uh, uh, the, uh, a mistake, you know, something that you, you went wrong, that you, you found a different way of per perceiving, you know, the the same new song or whatever, you know, you're working on it. So uh, I think everything is it's, it's between balance, you know, really to, to, of course, have a plan and be organized and prepare for that, but also, you know, leave room for improvisation, you know. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things I have heard you say in, in interviews was how well prepared you are normally going in to, to make a record, that you have all the songs more or less tracked out and then you go in and record them. But... I want to flip that a little bit. I spoke to Doug Aldridge last year and he's in the Dead Daisies now and he said that they all get in a room and they all write and then they immediately go into the studio and start recording what they've just written. Would that sort of a, a, a concept 
appeal to you maybe sometime in the future that you literally r- write and record at the same time? Yeah, I mean, I, I did. Uh, I have a side project uh, that is called De La Tierra, which is a project that I sing. Uh, I play heavy metal, but we sing in Portuguese and Spanish. You know, I, I play with an Argentinian musician, a Mexican and a Puerto Rican musician. You know, we have two albums. And basically, that's what we did, you know, because uh, we all have our bands, our projects. And De La Tierra is kind of a side project or everyone involved, you know. So uh, we don't have time really to 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 be a band normally, you know, that meet all the time and work and stuff. So we went to the studio. We worked some ideas that we had on the demos, you know, throughout the year. And uh, right away, we went to the studio and record, you know. I mean, anything is possible, really. That, that, then again, you know, it's all about depending on the concept, you know. Why are we doing this and uh, and why this is working or not working? You know, all depends on what we we want to say and how we want to say it. Mm. Now, how does Jens push you in the studio? How how does he challenge you as a guitar player? Oh, in every aspect, man. You know, I mean, he really uh, knows how to to dig the best of us in the studio without being like a, a dictatorship or something you know, that is unpleasant, you know, I think uh, it's a hard road, you know, but it's, it's a very rewarding, you know, because at the end, when you listen to the result, you find, wow, man, this is, was really worth it, you know, to go through this uh, purgatory, <laughs> you know, to get to paradise, you know, so uh, it's great. I mean, uh, working with Jens is fantastic because uh, it's, you know, kind of our, the same generation as we are, you know, uh, very knowledgeable. He knows all the shortcuts in the studio, everything about technology. You know, he's a great uh, musician as well, almost like a, a guitar luthier, you know, that really uh, pay attention to a lot of the, the small details and stuff that will make a big difference in the end because he was the one mixing the album and mastering as well, you know. So he knew what kind of elements he, he needed, you know, to to make the best, you know. And recording with him, it, it, it's fantastic, you know. It's very respectful, but at the same time, very focused, you know, very serious. It's something that you you see an ally there, you know, that really understands what Sepultura is all about and what we need. And, and uh, we in the end, we're working towards the same objective, you know. Hmm. There's a lot of artists I've spoken to, and they say that they don't actually need a producer now that they know the sound that they want and the vision that they have for the record. So why do you feel the need to still have a producer? Well, why not? It's not because you know you need to to follow that road. And then again, you know, we need a concept. <laughs> you, yes. know? you need why we're doing and how we're doing, you know. Okay, this next album, we're going to face this challenge and we're going to do it ourselves. Yes, we have the experience, we have the elements, we have the knowledge to do it, you know. But why? You know, I mean, it, it has to have something that really is going to drive us to to face and accept that challenge, you know. And it doesn't matter how perfect or how great and ready the idea you have in your mind. Somebody from outside will have a different point of view, you know. And when you have a producer that comes from outside, they, they were not there in the writing process for months and working on demos and stuff, get a fresh ear and a fresh look about everything. And uh, it comes with different points of view that you're never going to see it because you're so much inside, you know. It's like, uh, you know, we are we are here in this planet, uh, but once we go to the moon, we see another thing, you know. We, we see the, this little ball floating around, <laughs> you know, or something like that in the universe. You know, you have a totally different perspective of, of the things, you know. So uh, 
I think it, for me, I think it's very healthy. You know, if you have the right person in the studio that's really working towards the objective and the, the music, it, it works great. You know, I really think it's it's very helpful uh, to have a totally different idea that you never thought about. You know, mm. Andreas, would this be the one album you think in the catalog that you'd love to play in its entirety live, or is there another one? that you'd like to do? Uh, not really. I don't think so much about that, you know. I know a lot of bands are uh, doing tours like that and stuff, but, um, you know, it's, it's not the same lineup. And, and, and basically, we play all the songs from all the albums, you know, uh, on tour. Uh, mm-hmm. Since Best Devastation in 85 to the, the last one, Quadra, you know. Of course, our, our new tour is going to be around the new album. We're going to play a lot of stuff of the new album. But... Um, you know, this album, uh, I think it had the potential to do something like that in the future, you know, with a real orchestra and choir, you know, do something alive with the guests that, that they were involved in the album, you know, do something very special like that would be amazing, you know, it'd be fantastic. But it's something that we're not thinking about right now, you know, I think uh, our focus now is on tour, you know, we're going to do the North American tour with Sacred Reich and uh, uh, Crowbar and uh, Aftershock, you know, it's very exciting. We have an amazing run in Europe as well in the, in the summer, June, July. And um, who knows, you know, we need really to put this, the songs on the road and really we more familiar and more comfortable with them. So we feel we could, you know, do something like that in the future. Mm. Are there any particular songs that you haven't played in a long time that you'd like to put back in the live set? Yeah, there are a few of those. And actually, we're building the set list right now and uh, we're talking about trying stuff that we don't do for ages, you know, but um, I'd like to keep that as a, as a secret by now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you want to give out all the social media sites? People can't get in touch with you or the band. Yeah, I mean, we have our Facebook page, you know, Sepultura. We have our uh, our website as well, you know, sepultura.com.br from Brazil. <clears throat> and uh, between those two, you have all the, the, the info from Sepultura, all the tour dates and our... Uh, as well our individual social media info as well you know so uh, these are the, okay, the directions okay Andreas well I hope to see you in April I think you're in Boston so hopefully I can get backstage and say hello to you finally man it's been a long time we don't play in Boston very excited to be back yeah <clears throat> okay Andreas well have a good rest of the day and thanks for talking to me thank you you all too right, man all right, take care bye, bye. alright there you go Richie's talk with Andreas Kisser all about the new one from Sepultura, Quadra. Do yourself a favor, go out and grab that one. I won't, so somebody else, can you pick up two copies, make up for the one I'm not <laughs> buying? Not that I don't like it. I've just been uh, been buying a, lo- a lot of other stuff. But uh, anyways, that will do it for this week. We're thinking right now that uh, maybe next week we will have a uh, conversation with uh, Jimmy Bell. Yeah. So, uh that might be what's on the docket next week. You know, you never know. Shit happens. But uh, that's what we're thinking for next week is, like I said, a conversation with Jimmy Bell. But uh, for this week, that's it. Ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for myself and me, have yourself a great middle week. And until we talk to you again next week, remember. Focus on metal. Everything else is insignificant.
here. It's over. Go home.